Hello and welcome to The Zeros, or if you are one of our many fans in Norway, hey hey og velkommen til vår lila podcast. Yes, Norway is the second biggest nation for downloading episodes of The Zeros after the UK, so thank you there. If this is your first time listening to The Zeros, The Zeros are a set of years. The years of the 20th and 21st centuries that end in zero. And what we explore is how much these zero years belong to the decade just gone or the decade to come. So in series one, we're talking about 1990 and we are asking, is 1990 more of an 80s-ish year or a 90s-ish year when you think about all the popular culture that goes on, the TV, the fashion, the art, the music. And this week, we are looking at British and American TV at the dawn of the 90s with our TV expert, Susie. Just like to say, before we get into it, that we recorded this before the sad death of Bob Saget. So very sorry to hear that. And I'm recording this on the 28th of July, just having found out that the world has lost the wonderful Bernard Cribbins, a man who made British TV brilliant for generations of children, including myself and my own children, who back in the early teens, when they were toddlers, really enjoyed old Jack's boat. So, yes, as I said, very sad to lose Bernard Cribbins. Okay, let's get into something a bit cheerier and hear from Susie about the 1990s in television. So, Susie, as we've done before on this, we do a little thought experiment. And the last twice we've done this was once involving a toilet in a nightclub. And the next time was involving a toilet in a cinema. This doesn't involve a toilet. This is simply what I call Prince of Darkness TV. And what I mean by that is one of the main pivots of the story of the John Carpenter movie Prince of Darkness involves TV signals being broadcast back in time. I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to spoil it more than that. But Susie, I want you to imagine something. Take us on a journey. Got a teenage kid sitting in his bedroom in small town America in 1986, sitting down to a night's TV when suddenly, rudely, the television from the future, specifically from 1994, piles into this kid's TV set. What was he watching and what will he be watching once this all piles in? Well, I would assume he'd be watching Family Ties. Now he's watching My So-Called Life or Home Improvement. I don't I don't know which way this kid swings, but uh, if he's tuning in only to see the likes of Jonathan Taylor Thomas, then uh, he has to get some Tim Allen out of it. He'd be asking himself, why is there so much pine? <laughs> That's the 90s for you. It's just pine. <laughs> Tell us a bit about Family Ties, because I know that the, the slot that would have got for UK audiences would have been Channel 4's Midweek, where they would put their less prestige sitcom assets. So it would have been like tea time on a weeknight. Tell us a bit about Family Ties, especially for people who are just too young to remember or just didn't care at the time. The most important part to note about Family Ties is how specific the concept of the domestic family sitcom got. When Gary David Goldberg, creator of Family Ties, was in the midst of pre-production, 
NBC chairman Brian Tartikoff approached him and gave him the formula for a successful family sitcom. So first, the audience has to begin to watch because they recognize themselves in that TV family. Second, they continue to watch because on some level, they want to be part of that family. And third, and this is where you can really make your connection deep and lasting, they will watch because they believe they can learn how to be a better family. And how does this relate to a sitcom about aging hippies and their ultra-conservative oldest son, played by Michael J. Fox. Because so much of domestic family sitcoms or a family entertainment in the 80s as a whole was really about approaching or trying to court the growing consumer market of women who wanted to have it all. But the lines between the domestic sphere and the workplace were blurred. And you can see that on something like Family Ties with Elise. She's working as an architect, but her office is also the family kitchen. Then you get something like Growing pains for uh, the whole initial gimmick of the show was that Maggie, the mom, has been a stay-at-home mom for all these years working from home and now it's Alan Thicke's turn. Just because of TV's location as the centerpiece of the family home, especially at that time, critics and interest groups were always trying to make it more of a public relations tool than a means of art. Yeah, no, they wanted it to be a public relations tool. They wanted everything to be an after-school special, so really everything they put out on TV for family in the 80s had to be strictly pedagogical. Of course, what you get with situational comedy is that hegemonic formula of an issue is presented in every episode, interrupting the status quo, and then it is resolved and the status quo is back to normal. I think if you were a kid watching Family Ties in 1986 and then suddenly you're watching something like My So-Called Life, you would probably be shocked, not just from a strictly like storytelling point of view, I like to call this like static versus dynamic comedy. Uh, or entertainment in that the static ones, you know, it's episodical. There are no overarching storylines. In dynamic entertainment, you get overarching storylines and actions actually have consequences, so you get something like that. You also have characters who don't necessarily learn anything and whose issues and vices are not necessarily resolved. Give people some understanding what My So-Called Life's about and what you got from it. The show really created the genre of sardonic teen hangs out with loser friends and mopes around all day. So it's Claire Danes at her least bipolar and her most bored chronicling her life as a 15 year old in Pittsburgh. God rest her soul. What I think is really interesting about it is the creative decisions they were forced to make as they were making it because Claire Danes was 15 years old at the time and she along with a lot of her castmates were just still in school and it was really interrupting their schoolwork so they had to put more of a focus on the parents and the environment surrounding them. And I feel like they worked around that in very interesting ways. It exceeds beyond a very melodramatic teenager's perspective on teen life and discusses the broad strokes of life as a whole. I feel like my my main takeaway from watching the first episode after you ordered me to is I was streaming it on Daily Motion and to dodge copyright, the whoever uploaded it slowed it down by like 25%. And it took me like 30 minutes before I noticed that I have to like yank up the speed because everyone sounds so depressed. <laughs> and even like as I kept watching I, I kept forgetting that I had to go to 1.25 speed because I'm like yeah I guess this is how they talked in the 90s. Was, every episode just opens with her going I don't really know where I'm going with my life. Jordan Catalano spoke to me today. 
<laughs> you could actually put it at 150 speed. I feel like that would be a much more dynamic experience. <laughs> but... It's funny that you bring up that they had so much room and expertise in depicting that boomer generation that's above those kids because they had obviously come away from very successful late 80s early 90s drama 30 something the same producers so they had the good practice at depicting the midlife crisis of the baby boomer generation so able to sort of slip that in whilst mostly aiming it at that new consumer market of the Generation X coming into its late teens, early adulthood. If you were a teen watching this, and I know that with uh, at least the generation that I grew up with, I'm turning 24 pretty soon, is it's making a comeback, my so-called life freaks and geeks, whatever, because it is initially presented through the eyes of a very sardonic teen with no direction in life who hates her parents. I feel like it is actually very helpful for a child to see that her parents are fucking going through it. They are not happy and there is more to that but also i still haven't seen the last episode which i just you keep on fishing for me to tell you and i'm just i'm not confirming or denying any of your guesswork i feel like the perfect launching pad for my so-called life was definitely degrassi because that also presented in a very non-glamorized way of teen issues that make a lasting impact where characters don't necessarily make the right decision and wrongdoings are also not necessarily punished so this is Degrassi Junior High which was a Canadian follow-on to a, a drama called The Kids of Degrassi Street now tell me if I'm wrong it, it ended just before the 90s is that right Degrassi Junior High ended in I think 1989 but then Degrassi High starts in 1990 and it ends in 1992 or three I want to say and the school also closes <laughs> And then it reopens again in 2001 as a junior high and it just keeps going. It is a lot more realistic than something like 90210 or Saved by the Bell in that it almost feels like a documentary at times. You feel like you're just caught in the hustle and bustle of the school and it's a natural ecosystem of characters and you definitely get a real taste of what the early 90s actually looked like and the fact that these kids did not have a costume department. They just showed up wearing their own clothes it was not bayside high and i mean along those same lines although i think they probably did have a costume department the the look of my so-called life which was, was very very deliberately grunge i mean do you feel that when you're comparing degrassi to my so-called life that my so-called life was catching up with what degrassi had been doing yeah i would say so for my dissertation i was reading an article that came out in 1994 about culture clashes with degrassi and beverly hills 90210 and whoever wrote the article was talking about the definitive culture divides between the United States and Canada at the time which I think are not as obvious to especially European audience but you do see my so-called life cashing in on the fact that they do need a degree of dramatic flair to everything uh love triangles cliffhangers what what have you Degrassi did eventually sort of adopt that style too when they revived it in the 2000s but no I feel like my so-called life is the, the logical successor to Degrassi High but from a much more personal point of view it's a lot better at sort of capturing and not only what goes on in a teenager's lives and like the trials and tribulations that they have to go through but also how that feels to that kid which is often very blown up and oversaturated if we're trying to calibrate 80s and 90s i think what we're hearing here is from an american tv point
point of view, the 80s is still very, very dominated by these weekly resolve moralizing sitcoms, when, especially when it comes to, to shows featuring children. And when you get to the point of my so-called life, you're getting a much more satisfying narrative arc for your characters. It's more to chew on, more to digest than, as you said, these clipped weekly resolved episodes. So let's now get to the heart of the matter. I think we, we've done a nice calibration for American TV. Let's hit our zero for this episode. Let's hit 1990. And let's talk a bit more about the, the real dawn of Generation X as teens on TV. Let's start with 90210, which for people who don't know, was this extremely glitzy teen drama, which was very big both sides of the Atlantic. Tell us a bit about 90210 and why it's so markedly different from either Degrassi or from Saved by the Bell. And by the way, it does start on American TV in 1990. Obviously, time lag, British TV, it starts winter 91. Well, uh, 90210 encapsulated the 90s. It ran from 1990 to 2000. I will admit that my only real experience with 90210 is the 2010s reboot, but I feel like 90210 and Melrose Place, they were all jumping off the popularity of a lot of soap operas that had dwindled throughout the 80s when people had gotten tired of something like Dynasty in Dallas. One thing that is really important to remember at this exact time is that the networks discovered this new demographic called tweens because like actual teenagers would not be home on a Friday night watching TV. We'll get to that later. We'll get to the healthier options, but realistically, as a red-blooded American teenager, you would not be at home watching 90210. Their younger siblings would be. We're talking the 12 through 14-year-olds who were presented with this highly glamorized day glow version of adolescence and it was obviously on the beach because what kid doesn't want to live by the beach even that is really moralizing i feel like before something like gossip girl every single teenager's actions in any tv show had to have consequences one of the things that separates degrassi from 90210 is how 90210 it was more dramatic it had it was more flamboyant but at the same time it strayed away from actual serious issues like i know that dylan was an alcoholic but you never saw that on screen they just referenced how oh yeah he used to be an alcoholic it was really sad here's some more shots of this 30 year old cosplaying as a, as a 16 year old the other show that you just referenced there that lived in its own time bubble had no connection with reality at all even with the settings between was saved by the bell well i came prepared i wanted to give you as much information on saved by the bell as possible so i rewatched the 2014 Behind the Bell, the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story brought to you by Lifetime. <laughs> I love unauthorized. Clearly someone's had to like put that in as an injunction. You will not fucking connect our name to this bullshit in any way. No, because apparently it actually got a lot of hype at the time because it was said to be based on Dustin Diamond's memoirs. And Dustin Diamond's memoirs are faulty at best and absolutely cruel at worst. But it was actually very tame. So Saved by the Bell started out as a Disney Channel show called Good Morning Miss Bliss. And it was about Miss Bliss, who was that chick from Parent Trap, whatever. Haley Mills. I don't care about, I don't care about her. The show didn't care about her. <laughs> 
American children did not care about her. It was set in Indiana. It was about Miss Bliss guiding her sixth grade class uh, through the trials and tribulations of life. And it was canceled after one season. Then it was brought back again. I have the transcript from the Saved by the Bell unauthorized story. So here was the, the boardroom meeting, NBC 1989. The move from Good Morning Miss Bliss to Saved by the Bell. Brandon Tartikoff says, My daughter really liked the show. The thing is, she didn't care so much about the teachers. What she really loved were the kids. And imagine I'm the one responding to Brandon Tartikoff is blonde lady smoking. What if we brought the show back to NBC, made it part of our Saturday morning lineup? But Saturday mornings are for cartoons. That's what children want to watch. But what about the kids who don't want to watch cartoons? Yeah, forget the teachers. Make it about the kids. Nobody has ever done a live-action comedy with just kids. Do you think enough people will watch it if it doesn't have an adult star? Kids don't care about adult stars. They just want to see themselves. Yeah, we can make it more fun. We'll move the school to California. Everybody wants to go to school close to the beach, don't they? It's risky, but kind of exciting, too. I've got it. We'll call it When the Bell Rings. Were they right? Was that the first completely kid-led sitcom? I feel like the Brady Bunch kids just died for their sins. I don't understand where they got that idea that they were the first ones just breaking new ground. I think they were really smug about the fact that they cut out the teachers and it was just based around these kids as if Mr. Belding wasn't looming over their shoulder the whole thing fucking time <laughs> including when on their summer holiday he suddenly gets a fucking job in the mall they all hang out in hawaiian style bruh because <laughs> you know what kid doesn't want to go to school right next to the beach right can, can i just say i did it is class <laughs> uh, myself I mean, and the I... <laughs> and the uh composer of our theme tune both went to school by the beach and yeah it does rule yeah in northern ireland look okay so just because between about mid-october and march you literally had to huddle in a corner and cry but our school was basically the castle it looked like hogwarts on the beach pretty awesome i went to a cold war era school by the beach but it was in the North Sea. I feel like the most thrilling experience we had going to school right by the beach is one day a kid fell into the ocean and our music teacher happened to be uh, watching this from the window and ran out and saved him from the maelstrom. Oh, Jesus Christ. I should note that this beach is by the world's most powerful current. In every other way, this is just the inciting incident of a Scandi Noir. Child washes up dead on beach is much more like... Who doesn't want to go to school next to the beach? <laughs> that kid! <laughs> the whole of Norway. <laughs> but what's so interesting about Saved by the Bell is just how obnoxiously dayglow it is. And this is something Murren's already talked about, how grunge never touched that school. My thesis is that if we are to believe the boardroom meeting in the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story, and I feel like a lot of this is based on the truth, but they just sort of had to shrink it down to that one scene. They really wanted a fun location so kids would tune in like they want it to be colorful and cool and by the beach but they're at a studio lot in Burbank so you're never gonna see the beach unless you go you know Hawaiian style so they just put them up in these gaudy day glow spandex outfits to allude to the beach because yeah. that's what people dress like when they're at the beach right hot pants and a 
bright pink leather jacket. This is a show that ran right through to 1993, if you count the college years. And those girls' hair stayed scrunchy as fuck. In reality, if you watch what happens with Darlene and Roseanne and even Blossom and Six, they go grunge really quite quickly. They start growing their long hair straight and wear wee granny dresses. Even Daphne on Frasier, she showed up to that interview looking like she was about to go to like a whole concert. Fraser moves to Seattle in 94. Daphne's gonna look grunge. She's a bit psychic, so she was ahead of the times. Oh, right, yes. Are we gonna get into Phoebe and Daphne and the not quite disproved psychics of uh, mid-90 sitcoms? I think that's a, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, no, I would much rather talk about the fact that ghosts are canon in my so-called life. <laughs> Including the ghost of uh, Lemonhead's bassist Juliana Hatfield as a busking ghost. With Saved by the Bell, I think it was probably the first show to be targeted specifically at tweens which was good because NBC was losing out and a lot of their most popular shows were about to end so you need these teens to be fun and colorful but you also need them to do the right thing <laughs> at the end of each episode so the kids will know that when they start high school not necessarily by the beach they will say no to smoking a joint at a house party in Beverly Hills and 99. Or get addicted to pep pills. Caffeine pills. She has a whole fantasy where the three of them are in gym singing. That was not a fantasy. That was Zach Morris orchestrating a music video shoot because he wanted to exploit his underage teenage girlfriend's talent for singing because his dad's friend was a record producer who was looking for a hot new girl group. Zach Morris is trash. When it comes to sociopathic teenagers, Jason Bateman's character in It's Your Move was a far superior, much more entertaining version of that back in the... We're going well back into the 80s for that. But there was the blueprint for Zach Morris, but Zach Morris was just so fucking objectionable. So we've name-checked a few of these shows that do start in the 89-90 or 1991 season. Saved by the Bell. I, I talked about Blossom there with... My Mbiolic. Anybody connected with Big Bang Theory, I've just wiped them out of my memory, even though I love Blossom. So let's take a bit of stock here. What we know is the big 80s shows, Dallas and Dynasty have already gone. Miami Vice has its last show in 1990. So the 80s, as we've known it, is gone. We've got into here a bit about where the new teen dramas and tweeny dramas are starting. Here, what we've had is one season of Roseanne already. And Roseanne is very much focused on the three kids. And Roseanne's second season starts in 1990 and is huge. Because the other show that is dying but not dead yet is The Cosby Show. And Growing Pains. And Growing Pains. They're lingering into the 90s, but they're lurching there. They're really failing. They've brought in child characters that are not helping. The Cousin Olivers. Cousin Olivers. Thank you. Cousin Olivers. And then you've got Cheers, whose Cousin Oliver, Woody, turned out to be a big success. I think Cheers naturally concluded in 1993, but with such a wide cast of characters and NBC losing out to its competitors, which to an increasing amount is becoming Fox. They had to go spin-off country. The entire cast of Cheers was boomer or older. And there's no room in a bar for teenagers at all, other than a very problematic (laughs) episode. So is it just that suddenly you've got this brand new market and to survive, as the makers of 30-something had done, you've got to go and make Gen X friendly TV and weirdly though you then pick one of the older members of that cast and give them one of the most successful sitcoms of all time as a spin-off. Well you have to consider that 
Frasier wasn't their first try. Oh? The first try was the Tortellis. What? Yeah, they tried to make a spinoff starring the Tortellis. What, Carla's family? Yeah, it ran in 1987 from January to May. Fuck off, this never crossed the pond. It starred Dan Hedaya and Gene Kasem. Did Ray Perlman pop up? I guess not, no. Oh my god. So a spinoff with none of the actual main cast of Cheers. It's oh guest stars. Uh, Rhea Perlman appeared as her Cheers character Carla in the pilot in a dream sequence. <laughs> and George Went and John Ratzenberger appeared in episode three, paying a visit to Las Vegas and meeting up with Nick Dan Hedaya. This is no fucking way. They tried to do a Laverne and Shirley on Cheers. Yeah. Well, anyway, so yeah, no, Kelsey Grammer was not their first choice for a spinoff. You also have to consider that as. Frasier was playing out. They were also trying to make wings work. What? You know, wings. I don't know who from Cheers bled into that one. Isn't it about an air traffic controller in Boston? But set in the Cheers universe. Yeah. The tiny, tiny little alleyways of television that you get dragged down. I feel like I could just make up stuff at this point to you. I will cut it out. If it's bullshit, I'll cut it out. But if I find out you're bullshitting me, it's going on the cutting room floor. Don't worry. Yeah, no, wings started in 19. 1990. The show is set at the fictional Tom Nevers Field Airport, a small two-airline airport in Nantucket, where the Hackett brothers operate Sandpiper Air, their single-plane airline. The majority of the episodes are set in the airport. They made a sitcom about being at an airport, everyone's favorite activity. I can see how that didn't work out. You know how when you're at the airport and you're like, just like the movies. My life is a fucking movie, man. Let's go to Costa and get a panini for 10 quid. Yes, I tweaked it for our UK listeners. <laughs> you it ran for eight seasons, by the way. The fuck? You bullshit me. Yeah. Uh, now it was produced by the same guy who made Frasier. Fucking hell. Do you want to start talking about Frasier? It's so 94, it would have been one of the things that would be traveling back in our pipeline. I suppose the more the question is the evolution of Frasier as a character from really a bit of a foil for Sam and for Diane's attention to suddenly becoming so central and so zany, such a frenetic and crazy character when he'd really been presented at first as a stuffed shirt and how unexpected that whole thing was. People coming to Frasier now would not know about Cheer a lot of people, younger people coming to Frasier would just know Frasier. I think it was considerably more successful in the end than Cheers when it came to, to how people yeah. look back on it fondly and how repeatable it still is. Well, I just had a guy on Tinder say, well, I'm I'm watching Cheers right now, but for you, I'll start watching Frasier instead. He's really carrying that show. I'm just setting the stage in, ca- in case I meet this guy and he kills me and you have some audio material. But no, I feel like the 90s is just the decade of the beta male, really. It's the decade of the pretentious hipster and the guy who can't get laid and then Frasier is the ultimate wish fulfillment of just guy who shouldn't be getting laid getting laid a lot how does that compare with Jerry Seinfeld Jerry Seinfeld's always having dates he's hot I'm sorry Uh I started watching Seinfeld when I was 16 I was watching that and I was like yeah I would what if Jerry's girlfriend's is Rayanne from my so-called life of course she was like a 90210 actor just that little bit older than some of the rest of the kids on that set. She's way too old for him. She was 22 at the time. So Seinfeld and The Simpsons, they both start in the 89-90 season and how many endless amounts of 
thoughts and writings has been done about that. But if we're talking about finding the 90s-ness of 1990, surely it must be those two shows. No one associates either Seinfeld or The Simpsons with the 80s at all, even though in the case of The Simpsons, they're actually starting in 87 on Tracy Ullman and Seinfeld does start in 89 and looks really fucking 80s, but everyone just thinks 90s with Seinfeld. Sometimes when I try, as a a history student, I try to put things into perspective. I think about the 20th century, how it began with World War One and ended with Seinfeld. <laughs> what a time. No, I feel like Seinfeld is television and the American public really bidding adieu to the format of static sitcoms in that the characters on Seinfeld, they start out as like regular people, I want to say. And throughout the show the fact that they have a new girlfriend or a boyfriend every single week and the fact that none of their actions have consequences actually get back to them and the new narrative is that they're just horrible people and I just think it's so funny trying to apply that to something like Family Ties because they were all doing that too and the reason everyone had a different love interest in every single episode was because people in the 80s they couldn't necessarily like watch a show every single Friday night or something they they had to be able to tune in sort of get the gist of what the show was about through the theme song and just like the situation but it didn't rely on overarching storylines solely due to like the nature of the medium itself but with Seinfeld it's just such an interesting spin seeing as like yeah I guess it is kind of weird how a a man has 76 girlfriends (laughs) with in nine years. <laughs> no, so that's like the first show that actually starts playing off of that. Jumping away from 1990 and on to 94, the first season of Friends does that usually with Monica's love life. There is that more of a soap opera thread running through of Ross and Rachel, but the, the reset every week is who Monica's dating and, and the tension within the group is what Monica's boyfriends brings to it. And that's very Seinfeldy in that sense. Also with Frasier, my experience with Frasier is I watched all of it sort of in a frenzy as I was completing my bachelor's degree. So I watched all 11 seasons in like, I want to say three weeks. The best part of Frasier is Niles, of course. And seeing him pine over Daphne is fucking hilarious. And you want these people to get together. But the fact that Niles is in love with Daphne and Daphne has no fucking clue is a running joke. And they ruin it by giving them like an actual love story. Like it's satisfying to see them finally kiss or whatever, but we didn't need the whole rest of the show being devoted to them reflecting over how the majority of their relationship has been him pining over her and acting really crazy and weird. Yeah, because you're in a fucking sitcom. Oh, it definitely got shark jump at that point, especially when she was pregnant in real life and they just wrote into the show that she put weight on. That was one of my potential dissertation topics is how shows deal with someone in the main cast being pregnant because too many of them will be like, what if she got fat? They did that on Mad Men too with Betty. Betty get fat. Was January Jones pregnant? Yeah. And so they wrote in she gets fat and she gets thin again. And when she gets thin again, she's like back to being really hot and he sees her ass when she's leaning over the bonnet of the car and like, they wind up riding. Yeah. Like, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was pregnant twice throughout Seinfeld and Larry David ch- cracked the joke about, 
what if you're writing that Elaine gets fat? She reasonably got mad and like, no, that's that's really offensive. <laughs> Let's not. I don't think we have to get into too much detail about Seinfeld and The Simpsons and even really phrase other than to say they're archetypally 90s. If you look at Cheers in 1990, you see Frasier being a much more dominant character within the series than some of the ones who had been a couple of years before. And you definitely with Seinfeld and The Simpsons, like that's 90s. It starts in 1990. Yeah. It's there. Frasier feels like a character the Brady's would meet in like the 90s Brady Bunch movie <laughs> because he's so 90s. He's just talking about like Freud and drinking coffee. And that's supposed to be like funny juxtaposed against like the Brady Bunch's sort of very 70s worldview, which was already dated in the 70s. But also I love the Brady Bunch movie. When you look at how Frasier and Niles look, they look exactly like aging yuppie boomers looked at that time in the 90s. The big coats, the suits, and yes, the obsession with fucking coffee that is continually ridiculed in that show. It it just bleeds boomers in the 90s so completely. It's it's so perfectly achieved. I like how David Engels, who created Frasier, actively decided against making the new sort of meeting point a bar. Not just to differentiate it from Cheers, but to make it more hip. And I can't can't help but wonder if it was because Kelsey Grammer's drinking was getting out of hand. <laughs> because this is early 90s is prime time for beloved TV actors getting out of rehab. We have to get into TGIF. Yes, we're jumping back into the boomers verse and we need to get back to Generation X. And this is going to be very important for non-US audiences. Tell us about TGIF. Okay, so it's 1989. ABC boardroom meeting. Different boardroom meeting. Ted Hadbert, uh, then executive vice president of ABC, and Bob Iger, who is now CEO of Disney, are talking about how on Friday nights, all the big networks are either showing sports, movies, or adult dramas. And here comes some of that self-reflection from an episode of Growing Pains that came out in 1987 called TGIF. The plot of That episode is that Kirk Cameron is going out with his friends on a Friday night and the rest of the family, which is his younger sister and brother and his brother's babysitter and his parents are back at home watching TV. Kirk Cameron, who's the teen idol of this show and his friends, somehow inexplicably get invited to a cool college party where everyone's doing cocaine and Kirk Cameron is naturally like, this stuff is really bad for you. That stuff kills. And the B story is about the mom being scandalized at her young kids watching what is obviously just like Miami Vice and talking so casually about cocaine. So that's very self-reflexive in how television is talking about how television is bad for you. So the thesis of that episode is essentially what can families watch on a Friday night together? We already know that the teenagers are going to be out of the house. What are their younger siblings and the parents going to watch? And that's when TGIF comes in. Bob Iger's stresses in retrospect that TGIF did not stand for Thank God It's Friday because they didn't want to bring in God or the Sabbath. It stood for Thank Goodness It's Funny. The original lineup was Growing Pains, which had already been running since 1986, Roseanne, Family Matters. So it was about packaging as many family sitcoms as possible into this primetime slot where no one else was showing family-friendly entertainment. But if you look at 
all of the shows that came out from ABC in the late 80s throughout the 90s, these were all packaged to suit the needs of this very specific TGIF demand. I didn't know Razan was part of TGIF. Oh, you better believe it. Anything to sort of beat NBC. So I think this is one of the writers from Family Matters said, oh, Full House was also part of TGIF because of course it was. There were two basic elements that we felt were important. One was to give every show some moment of real human connection. This is what Tom Miller and I called it. Today, they call it heart. The second thing was we tried to fulfill the fantasy where a dad would sit on the sofa and say, it's the problem, son, let's talk. (laughs) We never avoided that scene. In fact, it was warm with Tom Miller. The writers referred to it as Miller time. (laughs) So the real cachet of TGIF is family-friendly entertainment often starring teen idols like Kirk Cameron, Leonardo DiCaprio, whoever was on Full House, who was of age, or they didn't have to be of age, but starring a hot teen like Lisa Milano, because I think Who's the Boss also ended up on TGIF. That would sell these 12-year-olds on the show they would sit down to watch, and then Alyssa Milano and Kirk Cameron would instill good values, like cocaine is bad. Don't disobey your parents. What I find so interesting about the fact that Growing Pains was part of the original lineup. Because you told me Growing Pains didn't really make it to Europe, right? No. I heard a lot of mention of it, but it didn't find a slot like Roseanne. You know, Roseanne really took off over here. It's very straightforward. The original gimmick was mom has been a stay-at-home mom for years. Now it's the dad, Alan Thicke's turn. But really, it's just about these parents who work and their kids who are funny. And it's a comedy. I told you I had a bomb I wanted to drop on you. Oh, yes. Growing Pains is in its sixth season. It's been running since 1986. We're now in 1990. Tracy Gold is about to be written out of the show and they'll write in Leonardo DiCaprio as a homeless teenager because the jokes the show made about how fat she was gave her actual real-life anorexia and she almost died. But I can sense that in Growing Pains, there is a growing pain. The growing agony of being forced to do the same show every single week without any artistic spin on it. And don't get me wrong, like, Growing Pings was actually really funny. Kirk Cameron is great. I would still fuck him. I don't care if he's anti-vax. I joined his fan club on Cameo just to give him a quote on my dissertation. But Growing Pains has this episode where the youngest kid, or who started as the youngest kid until they wrote in a cousin Oliver, comes home late. He's been joyriding in his parents' car. And he says, oh, well, if this were television, I would just apologize and say how much I love you and everything would be okay. And they're like, this isn't television, boy. Imagine I did that in like Alan Thicke's voice. He goes to bed and he wakes up in a Twilight Zone episode where he is Jeremy Miller, who plays Ben on the show Growing Pains. And he's so confused. And it's just like, he walks around the set like, where's the rest of my bedroom? Hey, dad. And dad is like, oh, oh, son, I'm Alan Thicke. You are my son on television. And it's just this nightmare of him trying to figure out like how to get out of this because he's still Ben on Growing Pains, but he is forced to be the actor who plays Ben on Growing Pains. And the whole time there's this omnipresent, like dark voice directing them. That's like the producer of the show. He runs around and he finds Kirk Cameron. He's like, Mike, Mike, something really weird is going on. And Kirk Cameron's like, what are you talking about, Jeremy Muller? We only play. 
play brothers on the show Growing Pains. And in the end, like, he tries to run. He tries to figure out how to get out of this. Kirk Cameron pulls him aside and he's like, don't you think? I don't know that you're my brother. I fell asleep when I was trying to do my homework six years ago and I've been trapped in this hell ever since. And then the whole episode is really just, a, yeah, it's a Twilight Zone episode about what making a sitcom for TGIF is actually like. Kirk Cameron is like, don't you think I'd like to grow up a little bit? Don't you think I want facial hair to grow out and like move out of my parents house it's so fucking good it's the biggest fuck you to NBC executives because it is like the original breadwinner of the TGIF lineup saying like you guys gotta try something new so this was in 1990 this episode yeah Erie Indiana completely stole that for the season finale stole every single detail of that three two three years later fuck i you've, you're killing my childhood i thought that was so amazing when area indiana did that area indiana is like the room for people who like cult television and i'm allowed to say that because when i was 15 i loved area indiana and the room i was like it's so funny no one knows about this it's so bad but it's also so good why did it get cancelled no one at school understands me i love how we've come full circle because in that mbc boardroom meeting in 1989 they're like Let's move Good Morning Miss Bliss to somewhere fun. Indiana's so boring. <laughs> and ABC are like, yum yum. I'm going to leap off TGIF and talk a bit about British TV. It's funny when you talk about that boardroom meeting of like, there's nothing on for kids to watch on a Friday night in America. British TV people didn't give a fuck about that well into the 90s. Six o'clock, Channel 4 every night. There was something that was reasonably family friendly and had their, what there'd been was a kind of mix always of kind of music shows like The Tube or The Chart Show. And then eventually they would start putting on things like Jonathan Ross, like eventually we'd have an early evening talk show there. But you would also have things like Air Indiana or eventually My So-Called Life. So this slot's always been understood to be a bit of like teen, early 20s friendly pop culture on a Friday night. In 1990, they create a new magazine show called The Word and... It's put out 6 p.m. on that slot, started, started late summer 1990, and it looked like it was going to be basically, you know, celebrity chat, live music. One of the first bands on it was the Pixies playing Valoria. Nana Cherry was one of the first guests. It was so utterly of its time and so utterly aimed at an audience that could include that tweeny audience that you're talking about especially little brothers like me with bigger brothers getting them into cool music already and so you're thinking great we've got this slot now so it's on at six o'clock and then it's repeated later sort of 11 o'clock for the after pub brigade but very very quickly they make the decision just to kill the early evening slot and almost immediately it transforms into this puerile exploitation it keeps all of the magazine stuff it certainly keeps some of the best sort of live music performances of that era famously Kurt Cobain announces that he's been fucking Courtney Love just before they play Smells Like Teen Spirit on it in 91. I have a great feeling about that. Yes, that's going to go so well. What was interesting about it was any notion that there would be something like TV for the younger kids standing on a Friday night just fucking evaporates as they begin to bring on just more and more extreme examples of people doing disgusting and obscene things just to get on television and the more that they do very tabloid sniggery slots about penis extensions and there isn't that same notion at all that TV is there for kids who've been at school all week who are staying up a bit later on a Friday night that is not available for British audiences at all if you go back 
to the mid-80s, there was an attempt to do something like Saturday Night Live called Saturday Life. And it wasn't exactly the same format, but what you had was all of the darlings of British alternative comedy, who'd already been reasonably established getting their brand new platforms on this. It was a slot, started at half eight in the evening, but went through to after the watershed. But what it did not do was what the word did. For instance, there were no F-bombs allowed on Saturday Live, even after it went after 9 p.m. It had some amount of racy content, but it definitely wasn't like, you know, my parents were letting me watch it. But when you get to the word, if I'd been a couple of years younger, there's no way parents would have let us watch it. I'll never forget, I was at a school that had a boarding department run by the nuns. And there was a big scandal because they'd all been sitting down and watching it, being chaperoned by the nun in charge of the boarding school. And a band came on. They were like a house band called the Digital Orgasm. Fuck, apparently you've never seen a nun move towards the remote control more quickly. Like, fucking get this off. Fair enough, shows like Roseanne were coming on on a Friday night as well. But overall, no. The word was deliberately then geared towards that after pub audience only and so yeah you've got a totally different experience as you're moving from 1990 to 91 if you go back to 86 and you've got the launching pad for a lot of these comedy talents when i was doing my time travel thought experiment i was having our teenager sitting watching saturday live in february 1986 and for the first time seeing a comedian doing a character and the character was called Stavros and the comedian was called Harry Enfield. Loads of money. Loads of money. That's the only way I remember him. Loads of money comes in a year later but if that kid watching TV in 1986 was getting the Prince of Darkness TV what would fall into his TV was the Fast Show and the Fast Show didn't have Harry Enfield in it and the kid watching would have recognized zero of the actors but that character Stavros and Harry Enfield's first appearance that leads to him partnering up with Charlie Higson and Paul Whitehouse and it's them who you will see in the Loads of Money music video a very young Charlie Higson dancing around with Paul Whitehouse and they go on to all work together on Harry Enfield's new sketch show he basically said fuck Monty Python I want to be the next Dick Emery who'd been a big kind of character sketch show actor in the in the 70s and Paul Whitehouse is like central to that and Charlie Higson's both a writer and an actor on that as well as is Mark Williams who's also in the fast show and also in Harry Enfield's show, because Harry Enfield became huge because of Saturday Live. He had loads of money, Stavros, and Bugger All Money, who was like the Geordie kind of like guy on the dole, which really quite dodgy now when you think about it. But he got rid of all of that. 1990 sets up this new show, the sketch show with a big troop of actors, and as well as Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Higson, he's also got Martin Clunes and Caroline Quentin. And of course, Harry Enfield then, with Martin Clunes and Caroline Quentin, does the first series of Men Behaving Badly with them. So that's stemming off from that. But meanwhile, on Channel 4, Jonathan Ross is producing the first series of Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, which includes Simon Day, also from The Fast Show. And of course then, Charlie Higson, Paul Whitehouse, and Mark Williams, and Simon Day all move over to work with Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. They go to BBC Two. And The Fast Show really, I think, comes on from that. So when you go to 1990, those two shows, The Harry Enfield Show and Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, they can really track back to 86, 87, to Saturday Live, and to Jonathan Ross beginning to become totally dominant on Channel 4. And that is where 1990 is a big pivot point for a lot of what will be 90s TV, especially someone who'd been so popular in one way in the 80s. And Harry Enfield just 
completely tabula rasa all of his assets in 1990, but Paul Whitehouse was central to all of that. And then Paul Whitehouse's relationship with Vic and Bob, like, is still going now. That's a real turning point for British TV in the 90s. At the same time, the more I looked at it, most TV in 1990 is indistinguishable, as it is even in 1994 on British TV. The general slop of television has such continuity throughout the mid-80s and mid-90s. Consider that Alo was running this entire time. Fucking hell. It was still delivering straight bangers, but like, <laughs> I feel so sorry for these people trapped in World War II for like 10 years. <laughs> The dad's army of the 80s and 90s is like, when will the war ever end? But yeah, I couldn't believe it when I found it. The last episode of That's Life, which was this British weird kind of quite right wing, half consumer, half comedy show. It was basically like the Daily Mail, but on television. 1994 was the last episode of that. Like just stretching right on through. The other thing I noticed, a lot of shows that actually start in 1990, light entertainment shows. When I pres- when I said to a couple of people, like, did you know that One Foot in the Grave and Keeping Up Appearances start in 1990? They were like, what? Like, yeah, there's not one episode of those sitcoms filmed in the 80s. A lot of light entertainment and sitcoms produced by British broadcasters just does not change its aesthetic at all for 20 years. They just look and feel the same. They're they're timeless in where you set them. I don't understand the 90s incessant desire to revive the idea of variety shows. I just remember Nickelodeon variety shows from the 90s would air a lot as I was growing up, like all that and the Amanda show. And I'm like, this isn't working, you guys. Put it to rest. One that did work that started in 1990 and I don't know if there was any American equivalent, was Stars in Their Eyes, which was uh, like a dress-up karaoke show. And it was originally presented by Leslie Crowther, who had presented The Price is Right for British audiences, and then very quickly got taken over by Matthew Kelly. And it was a precursor to Pop Idol and The X Factor. It's just that you had to dress up like and do a very good impression of the famous singer of that song. And it was fucking huge throughout the 90s. That sounds great. It sounds so much better than The Masked Singer. I mean, people had to make real effort. And and what was so funny quite often was just how unlike the person they were trying to be, they looked and that made it fucking hilarious. My only note in my notebook that might help this discussion is America's Funniest Home Videos was based on the Japanese variety show Fun TV with Kato-chan and Ken-chan. <laughs> they had to keep paying royalties to that Japanese broadcasting network until 19... 19- no, they're still paying royalties. No fucking way. Fun TV well, it- with Kato-chan and Ken-chan ain't ended in 1992. But if they want to keep running America's Funniest Home Videos, they have to keep paying royalties. Like, they Japan owns 50% of America's Funniest Home Videos. <sighs> That is gorgeous. I love it. I feel like the whole Seinfeld joke about that Japanese network that just uses that one clip of Jerry and he gets 10 cents in royalties every month. Like, that has to be a spoof on that. Again, this is interesting. So I know America's Home Video starts in 89, so it's definitely new. And then 1990 is the first of two pilots you've been framed in Britain doing the same thing which explodes becomes absolutely enormous and the expectation that you can with a camcorder which is suddenly becoming an affordable item in the home get yourself on television and that a producer can put on a primetime show with massive advertising real estate for fuck all money this is such a 
totally 90s innovation starting right then. So if we're looking for those moments where the 90s begin, this must be one where America's home videos and you've been framed just goes, yeah, like here, have a camcorder, make us the show. Do you remember that America's funniest home videos when it was still hosted by Bob Saget had an animated sidekick? No. Called Stretchy McGillicuddy. What? Was he a videotape? Well, I don't think I've watched them in like 15 years. I was doing some research. So apparently in season five, an animated sidekick was introduced named Stretchy McGillicuddy. He was known for trying to tease Saget and doing other crazy things. In one episode, he was shown on the two large TV monitors on both sides of the set, and Bob had to turn him off with a remote. Stretchy's catchphrase was, Don't get a little touchy, Bob. I'm just a little stretchy. The character was dropped at the end of the show at the end of the seventh season. <laughs> How fever dream does that sound? Like, that's Twin Peaks levels. It sounds like Poochie. But what does Stretchy McGillicuddy look like? I imagined him as, like, a monkey. Stretchy McGillicuddy. But what the fuck had he got to do with a camcorder? Why am I not getting any results for this? Because they paid a lot of money. Like, it's just like Poochie, where they, like, there's the contract saying you'll never see Poochie again. They did something to make sure it was actually a crime to ever show or own an image of Stretchy. I can't find like a source for this on the Wikipedia. Someone just trolling me. Am I trolling you? Oh, this is it. You're testing me. I'm gonna have to call this shit out. There's no Stretchy McGillicuddy. This is a lie. How could I up. make up Stretchy McGillicuddy? Because you're because you're feverish with the cold, and I don't know what Sudafed <laughs> shit you've taken. I've had some pretty whack trips on like Sudafed before. It's on. Like, it's literally on the Wikipedia page, but I can't find like a citation for it. <laughs> Somebody's fucking with us. Don't get a little touchy, Bob. I'm just a little stretchy. <laughs> you know, classic McGillicuddy. <laughs> right. I don't... Right, okay. If we can verify this, this is staying in. If we can't, I can't trust it. Or maybe we do leave it in and give everyone the current trip I'm having. You wake up tomorrow morning and you're like, Oh, I remember something about stretchy McGillicuddy. Your wife is like, what? <laughs> Stretchy McGillicuddy burned down 30 years ago <laughs> on this very night. <laughs> Back in 1990, let's talk a bit more about the dawn of viewer-created content because really interesting. I was just listening to Adam Buxton interviewing Edgar Wright, director of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and he apparently... They tried to make a Jeremy Beadle fronted show that was an addendum to You've Been Framed, where instead of haha, drunk falling down at a wedding, it was a hey, get your camcorder and make your own funny sketch. Um, and it was called Hot Shots. And it was all lasted for one series and it was fucking apparently absolutely terrible. But Edgar Wright admitted a couple of years ago to Adam Buxton that he'd got a job as the selector of the videos that were coming in. And they were all either so obscene or libelous or shite that he basically went out and faked home-created content to fill up all of this. And because it was 50 quid or 500 quid a video if you won, he sent all the checks out to his mates because they had to spend the money. So I'll put a link in the description to that episode of Adam Buxton so you can hear at that time, the BBC was beginning its Video Nation series and video diaries and just handing camcorders out to people to make half-hour shows. A lot of them 
unintentionally hilarious because the Channel 4 equivalent of that, which is where Adam and Joe start, is called Takeover TV, which is a little bit on into 95, so a bit past our 86 to 94 timeline, but they call it the original YouTube. In 91, Channel 4 had a show called Manhattan Cable with an American presenter called Laurie Petty, and it was showing what public access TV was like in the States at that time. But we had no equivalent of that at all other than you've been framed and then eventually these failed attempts to try to do something good because i mean part of the point of manhattan cable was showing just how fucking crazy americans are the rants that people would put on that's the whole gist of anything like this really and why any american cultural export resonates with international audiences is people can point and laugh and be like america's so crazy you can (laughs) sue mcdonald's because your coffee was too hot and then I'll interject, I'm at a party, I'm drunk as fuck, and I'm like, well, actually, there's more to that story than you know. But as of 1990, America's Funniest Home Videos, if Stretch and McGillicuddy didn't exist, then I have been burned Okay. by Wikipedia, but... Apparently, the show's production process featured a group of screeners viewing the submitted tapes and grading them on a 1 to 10 scale based on how humorous they were. The videos graded the highest were sent to the show's producers and then to Debana and another producer for final approval. Videos that feature stage accidents, people getting seriously injured, the abuse of animals or otherwise do not meet ABC network standards and practices are generally not accepted for broadcast. We're not going to rule them out. You're probably not getting on, but hey, we're leaving that window open. Well, for my generation, like shows like this just became obsolete with Ray William Johnson on YouTube. He was just the America's Funniest Home Videos for YouTube. He was just like, what's up, guys? Like, people would just submit YouTube videos to him. And he would talk about how funny those clips were. But, like, you have YouTube now. You don't need... I don't understand how this show is still running. In the same way as how was Bat's life still running in 1994. They didn't call them baby boomers for nothing. There's still fucking loads of them. And they still watch TV. No one else does, but boomers are still actually turning on aerial-driven television, and loads of them don't have a clue how to do any of this. So they, like, there's still an audience for this shit, because there's still fucking tons of boomers. If you want a good quote by me about the cultural exports of the United States at the time, like 90210 Baywatch, is that Baywatch is to Europeans what Mr. Bean is to the French. It's a caricature of a culture. And both hugely more lucrative internationally than at home. I just love how the French just love Mr. Bean because they look at him and they're like, well, yeah, that's what the British are like. Right, you brought him up. We have to talk about him. Mr. Bean? <laughs> Mr. Bean is the ultimate child of the 90s. Mr. Bean's first ever broadcast on television was at tea time on the 1st of January 1990. You had that first episode, still Richard Curtis working with Ben Elton. They wrote it together, Rowan Atkinson. They just killed Blackadder in 89. So very like a lot of other things, Blackadder lives entirely in the 80s. And then suddenly they bring out this thing together. Ben Elton and Richard Curtis writing a new character for Rowan Atkinson. It's timeless. You could have easily believed that some of those shows were being filmed in like 86 or 87. But it's an entirely 90s phenomenon. And it's one of two enormous British exports born that year. And the other, of course, is Wallace and Gromit. The first ever Wallace and Gromit cartoon is broadcast on Channel 4 later on that same year, Grand Day Out. 
See, I grew up with Wallace and Gromit. I haven't rewatched it since I was like three years old. So it's almost 20 <laughs> years ago. But the reason the Bristol City Council was like refusing to erect a statue in the Colston statue's place and all of the reason for why Colston stayed up for so many years is because he was an icon of Bristol. He was a son of Bristol. My idea is, okay, well, if you just want an iconic Bristolian, you either get Effie from Skins or Gromit. You have so, there are so many Gromit statues all over town. I don't see why they can't just erect a bronze Gromit. So there we go. Two massive British exports to, well, sorry, no, there's a third massive British export whose beginnings in 1990 are hugely important, not just because of them giving an enormous long career to a vile sex pest. Is it House of Cards? It's House of Cards. In 1990, you've got this, at that time, still kind of jobbing writer and Andrew Davis who adapts this book and it happens to be broadcast the first episode the weekend that Thatcher falls from power and it just explodes. Andrew Davis was someone who in the 80s was writing educational shows on the BBC but he was clearly a cut above. There was great writing, anti-Mangala levels of writing on those shows and then he adapts this series and immediately becomes Mr. Adaptation. And what do you get from that? You get Colin Firth with his balls dangling under that shirt. And you've got everything, everything else you can think of. Andrew Davis is suddenly Mr. Adaptation. Like if there's a novel that needs a prestigious BBC adaptation, Andrew Davis is writing it after that. And there you go. 1990, it's sitting there. Again, watching it now, I'd say a lot of people will go, is that? It looks a bit late 80s. But it's a pivoting point into the 90s that I thought we had to bring up. We're trying to find the 90s in 1990. And I think that it's there. That's it. As much as a lot of the other things that we've been talking about. So I had to give it a bit more than just an honourable mention. I'm going to manically grasp at straws and be like, oh yeah, the House of Cards is so emblematic of the power struggle that occurred after Thatcher was forced out of office and John Major came in and then Tony Blair came in and did nothing to stop Voldemort. My frame of reference for UK politics starts at Gordon Brown because he left his mic on that one time. Right, the last... The last thing on my notes before honourable mentions, and we can go wherever you want to go with this, including who gives a shit, Twin Peaks. What do we have to say that hasn't already been said about Twin Peaks? I think I was about the same age as you were watching Twin Peaks for the first time. Um, Because I was like, 15, 16, and it absolutely blew my mind. Then, of course, I moved to the Pacific Northwest, and for my 17th birthday, we actually stayed at the Great Northern Hotel. Holy shit. We went to the Double R Diner. No, I feel like because Twin Peaks has become so monopolized by film bros, people sort of forget, and I feel like part of the reason why people hate on season two so much, but they love the return, is they refuse to accept the fact that David Lynch wanted to make an actual ode to soap operas. Like, shows he was genuinely invested in and that he really enjoyed. And you can just see those story beats so perfectly encapsulated in Twin Peaks, but because people expected a David Lynch product to be at a much deeper level, they rejected that idea, and I feel like that's why Twin Peaks was inevitably cancelled, is because David Lynch was like, no, I want Ben Horn to have amnesia and think he's in the Civil War. And I'm like, that's funny as fuck. 
yeah, keep going. I want to hear more about that. And it's great until Billy Zane and the girl from Teen Witch shows up. No, but I think Twin Peaks, people view it as this massive cultural reset. And it was because it set the stage for HBO's golden age in dynamic storytelling and these very intricate stories being told that force you to sort of tune in every single week to keep watching. But at the same time, you can't really strip it of the original intent, which was to create an homage to the great soap operas of yonder. I just remember being 15, watching Twin Peaks for the first time because my cool new best friend had recommended it to me. I went in blank. I had no idea what was going to happen on this show. And then I get to, I think it's the end of like the third or fourth episode when Coop finally has the dream where he's in the Black Lodge. And I was terrified. I, I was agog. Like I couldn't believe that this, in David Lynch terms, by the numbers, murder mystery, had suddenly turned into so much more. But they managed to keep this consistent, very charming and quaint tone with this extremely dark story. And I think that's why it saw such a revival, but also you have to view it in light of people who, like me, because I'm an elder Zoomer. I was part of this trend of just sort of reclaiming old media that was like cancelled or forgotten. Being like, no, but it's actually really good. Oh, you haven't heard of this thing? But no, I think I was actually in North Bend, Washington, the fall that they announced that there was going to be a third season. And that was probably the greatest moment of my life as a precocious 17-year-old. Well, here's a question. So Twin Peaks, obviously, it was 1990-91 that it ran. And you mentioned there that a lot of people credit it for the HBO Golden Age. But is it a 90s show? Is it? Did it have any real lasting impact on the shows that came after it, really? Or is it an absolute standalone that generations of people keep on coming back to it and watching it and enjoying it? Is it too timeless? to be called 90s? I think the single greatest legacy that Twin Peaks left was dynamic storytelling. Okay. It was creating a water cooler subject. I feel like we haven't even brought up the phrase water cooler. If you were working a temp job in 1990, you're struggling to get along with your coworkers who didn't know anyone. You knew that absolutely everyone in that office had been watching Twin Peaks. So that's what you get together for every single week. And you're like, who killed Laura Palmer? Who the fuck was it? Creating that lasting mystery because mysteries up until then had been very much inspired by like the Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie route of it's the same detective, but a different mystery every week. Here you have the same mystery every single week and you have no clue where it's going. The actual compulsion to watch every single episode that also coincides with the advent of commercial VCRs. That's very important for like the year 1990 is that people could actually tape stuff and watch it later. Those two things intersecting, I think, are responsible for what came later. But I think the, the biggest like lasting impact Twin Peaks had was with that sort of fan engagement and it, its nature that sort of compelled you to keep watching every single week. But in terms of whether or not it's a 90s show, it's the same what you were saying about whatever you were saying British TV. It's timeless. If you look at the way people are dressed in Twin Peaks, you have no idea when it was set. You just know where it was set. And the fact 
that because early 90s, as, you know, Saved by the Bell and Beverly Hills 92 when we were trying to sell you on the beach, and you still have, like, the remnants of Miami Vice and Hawaii Five-0, you get this new wave establishing a new cultural hub in the mm. Western world, and it's the Pacific Northwest. Twin Peaks... Frasier, grunge, drugstore cowboy, my own private Idaho. I think just the move in itself, geographically, had a really big impact on culture because up until then, you sort of had the four de facto cultural hubs of the United States. You had California, New York, the South, and I said four because I was counting Florida, but Florida falls under South and California in terms of shooting. But now all of a sudden you have the Pacific Northwest. You have an actual cultural hub in the North encapsulating a whole different culture and a whole different state of mind. I was struggling there. I was thinking too much about attempts to rip off Twin Peaks. I had not thought at all about how it actually allowed for a different method of storytelling, which bled through to so many shows after that. And also, in keeping with the sort of geographical point, is the tone of Twin Peaks. The actual move to the Pacific Northwest is part of why it resonated so well with people in Europe. Because you step out anywhere in Europe and it's fucking Twin Peaks every single day. <laughs> why do you think the Norwegians were such a big part of Twin Peaks? Now listen, it, I can hear that it's long past bedtime in my house. So that's a very good point to end on. I've got some honorable mentions, which I'm going to run through quickly because I think listeners are going to be screaming, what about, what about? So I'm going to give a few examples and then people can come back at us. And if they've got any suggestions or want to have their own say, they can record a brief message and maybe we'll play it next week. So I've put down here Quantum Leap and The X-Files, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Pingu started in 1990. Star Trek The Next Generation had its first UK screening in 1990, a bit later. The Crystal Maze, a show that would become later with Jules Holland that was on BSB before it became B-Sky B, that, uh, that no copy of exists or survives, but it was like a live music show with Jules Holland presented. So yeah, there's a few of those. I think The Crystal Maze probably is going to get a whole load of people writing and going, what the fuck? How did you not mention The Crystal Maze that started in 1990? So you're looking very baffled there. See, every time you mention something I don't know about, I will just pull the fact that I was born in 1997. Oh, I, yes, that's it. Uh, that's fair enough. <laughs> I get to I get to use that card. Yes, you were born in Norway in 1997 and then lived in America. So I think that's fair enough. But yes, I think between the X Files and the Crystal Maze, we're probably going to have some fans writing and going, "Why did you leave them out?" And of course, we've already had a, a few mentions of Baywatch, and we'll just leave that there. Right, Susie, that has been brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to look at my phone bill. Wow. Thanks uh, to Susie for telling me things about the early 90s that I had no idea about. Even though she was minus seven at the time, she knows a lot more about 1990 than I do. So... Now, as usual, it's over to you. Please join the conversation on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram by searching at Zeros Podcast. And as I always say, Zeros, I spell with an O-E-S at the end of Zeros. Uh, you can also email us at zerospodcast at gmail.com. I've really enjoyed that we had a good little back and forth on Twitter. Myself, former guest Alban Turner and a tweeter calling himself the Greeny 71 about when exactly the 90s started in music. Alwyn uh, believes that the Manic Street Preachers are the ones who buried the 80s, 
while a Greeny71 is all about that rave. So thanks, guys, for getting in touch. And it's music where we're going next in the last of the main episodes of this series. Connor will be with me next Friday for an extensive but far from exhaustive trip into the soundtrack of 1990. Another thing to say about music is, as usual, that our brilliant theme tune is by Tony Wright, a.k.a. Verse Chorus Verse. Please, please do visit his website, versechorusverse.bandcamp.com versechorusverse.bandcamp.com and if you like what you hear then please buy it artists need paid and spotify isn't doing that get in touch be respectful have a good week and you'll be hearing from the zero soon bye bye hey, no, 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 no,